Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that was not invited, but he's certainly glad he made it. He is the captain. I just assumed the invitation got lost in the mail. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Well, hi, too, Captain. I'm glad that you made it, because today we are drinking Dimwit by the River City Brewing Company, Garage grade three and a half bottle caps out of five. Dimwit is a fantastic wit beer brewed in Wichita and delivering everything one would expect from a great wit beer. And Dimwit is a fantastic co-host. It's citrusy, it's light, and it's warm. And today's beer was brought to us by these witty guys and girls. First up, we have LaDonna up in Alberta, Canada. And a big we like a jib to Sarah in Stockton, New Jersey. And Captain, everybody knows you don't mess with Texas. And down there we got Adrian and Denton. And we also have Catherine in Houston. Big shout out. You mess with the bull, you get the horn. Next up, a cheers to Veronica and Matt in Charleston, South Carolina. Also, a cheers to Carrie listening in the farmlands in Ledger, Montana. Mm. And last but not least, we have Brenda in Bloomington, Illinois. So thanks to everybody for your continued support. To get involved, go to truecrimegarage.com. Check out our blog. Check out our store page. Also, True Crime Garage is awesome on Instagram and untapped. And if you're in or around Columbus, Ohio, this Thursday, May 10th, we're going to be doing a live event through Columbus Podcast Festival. For more information or tickets, check out columbuspodcastfestival.com. I will see you there, Captain. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab some beers. Let's talk some true crime. February 10th, 1978, Friday evening in the Wichita, Kansas City Hall building, the police chief made the following announcement. The purpose of this news conference is to advise the public of an extremely serious matter involving a series of murders which occurred in our city. As you know, in January of 1974, four members of the Otoro family were murdered in March of 1977, Shirley VN was killed, and in December of 1977, Nancy Fox was also murdered. Earlier today, KAKETV immediately brought me a letter where the author took credit for the Oturo, the Fox, and the VN murders. In addition, whoever wrote this letter has taken credit for a seventh victim. We are in no doubt and are convinced that the person that killed the Oturos, 
Miss Fox and Miss VN is the same person. I want to restate, there is no question in our minds that the person who wrote the letter killed these people. This person has consistently identified himself with the initials BTK and wishes to be known as the BTK Strangler. Because we are sure this man is responsible for seven murders, we wish to enlist the assistance of each citizen of this community. Our police department has already begun special efforts, which is as follows. 1. Additional uniformed officers are already on the street. 2. A special detective task force involving the major case squad has been established. 3. A special phone number for citizens to call has been established. This phone will be staffed 24 hours a day. 4. We have solicited the assistance of the district attorney, the sheriff, and professionals in the field of human behavior and would welcome the assistance from any person regardless of their expertise. I know it is difficult to ask people to remain calm, but we are asking exactly this. When a person of this type is at large in our community, it requires special precautions and special awareness by everyone. When we left off last week, we finished the week by announcing that the BTK killer had named himself, had sent a letter to KAKETV, and immediately that letter was sent to the police department. That same evening, they held the press conference where we just discussed that announcement that they made. Now, as you can imagine, the police announcing to the public and to the local media that a predatory sexual killer is on the loose sent a wave of widespread panic, shock, and fear across the community. The announcement quickly became national news. With the public aware that BTK was hunting people in Wichita, many rumors were swirling about who the killer was and how and why he chose certain victims. One thing that was also mentioned during the public announcement was that the killer had cut the phone line to the houses before he entered the home to attack and kill the occupants. This information inspired a safety precaution that became a ritualistic habit of nearly all the citizens of the greater Wichita area, especially something practiced by single women that lived alone. Because the phone line was cut, people would, upon arriving back at their homes, they would run to the phone in the house and pick up the receiver and listen for a dial tone. A lot of people would call their home from another location before returning home to make sure that the phone would ring. Other precautions were taken by citizens as well. This included the increased sales of peepholes, deadbolts, other additional door locks, and of course, guns and dogs were in high demand. But a pattern that we would see time and time again after this communication, BTK went dark, and it was 14 months later when we have another incident. Yeah, this is going to be around 10 p.m. on April 29th, 1979. This is when Dennis Rader shattered the basement window of a 61-year-old woman who lived alone. Now, she lived just one mile from one of his previous victims, Nancy Fox. Mm -hmm. He climbed into the home, and his victim, she was not home at this time. He, he would wait for her to return. There was a guest bed down in the basement beside it, he decided to lay out some ropes and a broom handle. Then the woman returned to her house. She had spent the night out with several friends. The friends had drove her home. She got out of the car and she approached the front door. Reaching into her purse, she pulled out the keys to her house. She turned and smiled and waved at her friends. She looked down to make sure that she had the right key. And then she heard her friends shout from the car, Anna, wait, why don't you come over to our house? for a cup of coffee. Anna turned from the door, put her keys back in her purse and walked back to the car, got in and they drove away mm -hmm. inside the house. BTK grew angry as he waited and waited for her to return. Eventually he ends up leaving the house. When Anna did return home, she found the broken window, the ropes and the broom handle. She picked up the phone to call the police and report a break in, but the phone line was dead and there was no dial tone. Right. 
she ran to her neighbor's home and called the police from there. When police arrived, they had found that the phone line had been cut, and they also discovered that some jewelry and several articles of clothing, along with $35 in cash, were missing from the home. Initially, this incident was not linked to BTK, but that changed when on June 15th, an envelope addressed with block letters arrived at Anna's home. Inside was an article of clothing and jewelry that had been stolen from Anna's home. These items were accompanied by a letter and a drawing. Now, the drawing was of a bound and nude woman. The letter was a poem, and it was titled, Oh, Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? And it read, "'Twas perfect plan of deviant pleasure, so bold on that spring night, my inner felling hot with propension of new awakening season, worn wet with inner fear and rapture, my pleasure of entanglement, like new vines at night. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Drop of fear fresh spring rain rolled down from your nakedness to scent to lofty fever that burns within. In that small world of longing, fear, rapture, and desperation, the game we play fall on devil ears. Fantasy spring forth mounts to storm fury, then winter clam at end. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Alone now in another time span, I lay with sweet enraptured garments across most private thought. Bed of spring moist grass, clean before the sun, enslaved with control, warm wind scenting the air, sunlight sparkle, tears in eyes so deep and clear. Alone again, I trod in past memory of mirrors and ponder why for number eight was not. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Two days later, the newspapers are going to report that BTK Strangler tried to get his eighth victim, but he failed when she didn't return home. So the would-be victim was Anna Williams. Now, she actually moved out of town shortly after the incident because even though the police didn't connect the break-in with the actions of BTK uh, until the letter was received, Anna's mm. instincts told her that it was the serial killer and she feared that he would return to claim her at another time. Right. And actually, in fact, when the letter was sent to her home, she had already moved out by that time. She had sent someone to collect the mail until the home could be sold or whatever they intended to do with it. So the letter was actually received by somebody else. But one thing that I think that this shows here, and I think there's a, there's a lot of evidence of this in the actions of the BTK strangler here, right? is that after... So after the announcement of the BTK Strangler, just like the son of Sam who commit, you know, communicated with law enforcement and with the public, and I also suspect this to be the case with the Zodiac as well, though we may never know, Dennis Rader became, well, he became like addicted to the news coverage about him and about the case. Right. And he loved being the city's so-called boogeyman, let's say, right? Yeah. Or he, what everybody's fearing, right? Right. He right. He loved the fear of the city's people. Uh, he loved that he knew the answer to the biggest question around town, who was BTK? Yeah, or who was POS? Well, and I tell you what, though, he, he loved the secrets that he was keeping. Yeah. And I would suspect, and well... Later, we would we would learn that this was fact, actually, that he collected the newspaper articles about him. And like we learned from Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer, we learned from his wife after he was finally caught that Gary seemed to be obsessive about not missing the evening or nighttime newscast. Mm -hmm. This probably would have been the case with Raider as well. Right. Now, regarding the newspaper articles and collecting them, well, we also know that BTK has a wife and two kids, so he would have to hide his collection. He wouldn't want for his family or others to know that he had an unhealthy fascination with the case. Yeah, and they're probably watching for two reasons. One, if they sent a letter, what is the reaction? And also, just is there any updates from the police so they can monitor, you know, is law enforcement closer to catching me? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of double duty, I guess, right? Two birds. Yeah. You get to monitor the investigation or what, what the public can see of the investigation as well as see the reaction and, and it's filling your ego at the same time. Yeah. It's so scary. While we while we are talking about his family, um, 
you know, we talked about people checking the phone lines. One thing that I found very interesting about this case was his wife, Dennis Rader's wife was afraid of the BTK um, to the point. She was one of the people that would check the phone line in her house. And she was vocal to friends and family about being afraid of the BTK strangler. Well, and Dennis probably got off on that. Well, he, he may have, but I know there was one time that he did not like it at all because remember last week we spoke about the phone call when Dennis Rader made that very short phone call announcing a homicide to Mm -hmm. the dispatcher. And of course they show up to the address that he gives and sure enough, there's a victim there. Well, remember they played that on the newscast. They played that as bad as that audio was. They played that on the newscast, hoping somebody would recognize the voice. The strange thing here though, is the two of them, Mr. And Mrs. Rader were watching the news together that night. And after they played it multiple times, she looked over at him and almost kind of like jokingly, very casually says to him, that sounds like you or BTK talks like you do. And, <laughs> and let's, let's reenact that. Okay. So <laughs> I'll be Dennis Rader. Okay. And then you be his wife. Okay. Play. They just played my voice. Go ahead. That sounds like you. <laughs> Honey, a lot of people sound like me. Couldn't be me. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I don't know what was actually said, but uh, according to Dennis Rader, he got he got very agitated and, and pretty defensive when that had happened. Oh, but, so I played it completely wrong. I, I figured he'd just you know laugh it off. Oh yeah, that sounds like me, honey. I'm the BTK. I'm gonna stab you. <laughs> uh, the wife told Dennis that the the phone call sounded like him, but but we also have to keep in mind that they've been together for quite some time by this point. She so she he, never actually thought that her husband was the killer, right? But so he pulled the old, you know, she's just trying to make a joke. Hey, honey, that kind of sounds like you. And he pulled the old. What the hell are you talking about? I, I don't know what went down. He just said he, his only comment on it would be that he was annoyed. No, he wasn't annoyed. He was scared when she oh, said okay. that to him, that he was, he was scared. So now, but I want to, I just point out here that this, this letter, this letter that we just discussed or this communication, I believe is proof of his addiction to his notoriety of his BTK persona, because When the cops in the local media failed to connect this break into BTK, it's about 15 months later, and he wants to let the public know that he is still around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, be afraid because I'm still out here. I haven't left. I'm still hunting people. We've spoke quite a bit about Dennis Rader's personal life. So he is this man living in Park City who had terrorized Wichita, killing seven people, announcing to the public his name and presence sending taunting letters and threatening everyone mm-hmm. to kill more people. But he's he's a guy living this quiet and pretty reserved life in Park City, living in a, a modest home with his wife, son, and daughter, and working for the ADT company, rising through the ranks over the years. Yeah, He is not killing during this time, but he has trophies. He has trophies from his kills, and unbeknownst to those close to him and to those living with him, he is constantly fantasizing and reliving his sick, murderous fantasies behind closed doors in his home. Raider also did what he called self-bondage. And he did this in wooded areas. He did this at his home. And he also did this. This is uncomfortable. Really, this whole conversation is uncomfortable. But he also did this in his parents' basement. was like one of his favorite places to to go about this self-bondage thing that he liked to do. And what he would do is I guess his parents, um, you know, they, they lived not terribly far from where he was living Mm -hmm. and they traveled a decent amount, you know, several times a year. And I think he would go check on their house, maybe collect the mail, things like that. His parents' basement was a place that was one of his favorite spots for what he called self bondage. And this is where he would take these long drawn out, um, sessions of, of himself where he would be, you know, he would, he would wear mask women's clothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was hanging himself, tying himself up using handcuffs on himself. And he would also take pictures of himself when he was doing this self bondage, uh, let's say hobby 
of his. Yeah. And and I believe that um a fetish. Well, yeah. And and I don't know how many you can find online, but there are some of these these pictures have gone uh public uh mm-hmm. of of his his crazy hobby, but you know, he's also doing normal things though at this time. He's raising his family, being a husband. He's he's listed as a and regarded as a hard worker at the ADT company. He mm. is involved in his church. Uh by the early 80s, Dennis's son Brian is in grade school and he joins the Cub Scouts. Now, Raider was in the Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts when he was a kid and teenager, so this is something that he he enjoyed himself, but he also passed it on to his son. And Dennis was involved. Uh, he was a volunteer there. He helped out quite a bit with the Boy Scouts and with his son's Cub Scouts. And I have seen several websites that state that Dennis was a very officially appointed Boy Scout leader. I think this is just more folklore. Mm-hmm. I think he just helped out there, but he was involved. But for Dennis Rader, uh, for BTK, the Boy Scouts would later become an important thing to his crimes and to his murders. Now, we had recently mentioned pictures, um, you know, taking the Polaroids of himself. Mm-hmm. One theory early on in the BT case was that the killer was not only taking some trophies from the houses, but he was probably taking photos of the victims and of the crime scenes as well. Mm-hmm. This is a very strong theory and a smart one with a lot of thought to back it up. Now, remember, he killed four members of the Otoro family, and then many years later, in a communication to the police, he recalls very specific details about each one of the victims and about what he did using which items and specifics about the crime scene. Yeah, to prove it was him. Right. And there was FBI that stated, you know what, either this guy's taking photographs of the crime And that's how he's able to give us such a great detailed account of what had happened a few years later, Mm -hmm. or he has a photographic memory. Now the FBI didn't think that photographic memory was likely with this character. Mm -hmm. Now the early eighties in Wichita was there was the birth of something that would later be called the Ghostbuster squad. By this time though, there had not been a murder or communication from BTK in years Now, what was the Ghostbuster squad? Well, this was comprised of eight officers and it was, you had all kinds of different ranking officers in this Ghostbuster squad. Did they have a cool car? Uh, I, I don't think that they Uh. actually had a vehicle at all. I think Mm. these were, these were men that spent a lot of time in closed door meetings, trying to come up with new clues. They were reviewing the old cases Uh, trying to find something within those case files that might lead them to BTK and coming up with a strategy for tracking this guy down. Mm -hmm. Now, some of these officers, like I said, different ranking officers, some of them would be experienced homicide detectives, some that had originally worked the Oturo murders and the other two murder cases as well. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you have officers that were just gone. You know, I believe one of them was even on like desk duty because he was injured in the line of duty and couldn't go out of the office. But one officer that was involved in this, a young officer named Ken Landwehr, he was a police officer at the time. And he, he's somebody that we would see, he's going to end up working this BT case for like 20 years, you know? So he's one of the early guys in on this. And one of the guys that worked this case and saw it through to the end. Now, the name, the Ghostbuster Squad, that was not an official name. You know, they weren't called that by the police department. Mm. It's really annoying when people don't use official names. Well, I don't know that they had a name. They were probably just referred to as some type of task force, mm-hmm. would be my guess. What It was kind of a nickname that the department gave the task force because one day there was an officer talking to another officer and said, hey, all those officers and detectives, I see them in there every day working on something, having meetings. What are they doing in there? Mm-hmm. And the other officer said to the guy, don't worry about that. They're just chasing ghosts. Yeah. And so that became the kind of nickname that they slapped onto this task force. The evidence keeps pouring in. 
At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. 
Some days I need a pack of lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates, and a big shout-out to all the beautiful people that we met at CrimeCon this weekend. Marine Wallace Hedge was 53 years old, was a quiet, dependable second-shift supervisor at a medical center coffee shop. Now, she was originally from Arkansas, but she had moved to Kansas with her late husband. She was widowed. She was described as a kind, petite, well-dressed woman with a charming southern voice. She was a devoted mother to her three daughters, one son, and a devoted, she was devoted to her grandchildren as well. Now, she enjoyed playing bingo, doing yard work, and attending the Baptist church. She lived on the same block as Dennis Rader. Actually, she had lived there on the same block as Dennis Rader for over 30 years. At some point, Dennis started to fantasize about Marine Hedges. Mm-hmm. He got a strong sexual charge thinking about what she would look like tied up, gagged, and with a rope tight around her neck. Now, this could be a big, big problem for Dennis because Factor X is telling him to kill her, but killing a neighbor would be extremely risky. But once Factor X focused in on a victim, Dennis had to get to work trolling the subject, checking up on them as he would call it. Mm -hmm. Now, during this process, Dennis learned that the woman had worked at a coffee shop, and he would call this Project Cookie. Sometimes at night, Dennis would take a bike ride, and he would sneak around her home, watching her through the windows. Sometimes he would stare at her as she lie in bed at night with the light on reading. Mm -hmm. Dennis didn't care about the risk. the, The urge that he got to kill her was so strong He was willing to take the risk. He was going to create some kind of plan so that he could kill her, but also give himself an alibi as well. Okay. So on the weekend of April 27th, 1985, Dennis Rader was attending a Boy Scout camp. This is just outside of Wichita. He left the camp in the evening with the pretext of having a headache and needing to get to town to buy something for his headache. In his vehicle, Dennis Rader had what he referred to as his hit kit. Mm -hmm. This would be his kit of prepared items he thought he needed or intended to use during the course of one of his murders. You know, we saw this type of thing with Bundy, you know, that you keep this thing in your vehicle or you keep it close at hand and you have these materials or items that you think you're going to need to use. Right. But this time captain he had actually stored these items in a pre-selected bag he, he put them in a different bag this time he was using a bowling bag mm-hmm. so after he left the camp he parked his car by a bowling alley inside the city and he bought himself a beer at the bowling alley he drank half the beer and deliberately spilled beer on his clothing and on his hands so he would have smelled like he had been there all night drinking a lot so he calls a cab and when the cab gets there, he pretends to be drunk and he tells the driver that he's far too drunk to drive home and he needed a ride. But Dennis instructed the driver to take him to take him home, but he didn't give the driver an actual address. He told the driver to take him to a park in Park City so that he could walk it off before going home, saying right. he wanted to get some fresh air, was too drunk to see his wife, whatever. Right. So this park, it was near the backyard of Hedge's property. Raider shows up. He makes the walk to her property, and he's actually disappointed to see Marine's car in the carport. So he assumed when he saw the vehicle that she was at home. He didn't want her to be home when he arrived at the house. He cuts the phone line, and he quietly pried open a rear door using a screwdriver. And it turned out that, that no one was home. To his surprise, even though that car was there, nobody was in the house. 
But soon a car pulled up and Raider decided to hide in a bedroom closet. Now, Marine Hedge and a friend, this was Gerald Porter, entered the home. They stayed there talking for approximately two hours. The whole time, Dennis Raider is hiding in this closet, listening to the two of them talk, waiting for the man to leave. Well, Gerald left the house that night around 1 a.m. Now, Raider waited until Marine went to bed and, you know, till, till he, he thought that she had fallen asleep. At that time, he crept out of the closet. He turns on the, the bathroom light so he can see what is, he's doing. And then he pounces on Marine, who's still in the bed. He manually is choking the, this woman. Now, I, I said she's a petite woman. This woman weighed less than 100 pounds. Mm-hmm. So Dennis Rader would seem like a giant on top of her. He ends up killing her when he's he's choking her. He was really just trying to get control of her and get control of the situation, but, but because he was so much larger than her, mm-hmm. his hands strong, he ended up ch- strangling her to death. Now, this, this fantasy-driven outing was far from over, though. There was other stuff that he wanted to do. Looks like he's going to have to make up for it now that he accidentally killed her too fast for his liking. So he decided to rummage through the house looking for trophies that he could keep. And he decided to take her purse and everything in it. He was going to do something he had not done before. He was going to remove the victim's body from the house and dump her somewhere else. Mm. He didn't want this to look like a BTK killing. Remember, this is way too close to his home. Right. So he dragged the body with the bedding to her car and put her in the trunk of her own car. Then Dennis Rader drove directly to his church where, okay, so he was so trusted at his church that he had keys to the building. Mm-hmm. He could get into the building anytime he wanted to. So he dragged the body underneath some Well, trees. I mean, let's be real. He could get into it whether he had keys or not. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. true. You know, he could break into the place. He dragged the body underneath some trees and he entered the building um, down and went down to the basement. And then he taped black plastic over the basement window so no one could see inside. Mm-hmm. He'd actually stashed the plastic there a few days, maybe a week before, knowing that this was his intention, knowing that he was going to need it. He then dragged the body down to the basement and he photographed it in various poses. When BTK is done living out these fantasies, he's going to return his victim to her trunk and he's going to then take off. Yeah, he's going to be looking for a place to ditch this body. So he's looking for a dumping ground and he finds a place that he likes. Uh, This is in a ditch along a dirt road several miles outside of Park City. Mm Mm-hmm. When he gets there, he takes her out of the trunk, he places her on the ground, and then he covers her with leaves and branches. Now, he also left a knotted pair of pantyhose near the body. Then Dennis Rader dropped her car off about six miles away at a shopping center parking lot. He left the car there after wiping it down for fingerprints. By now, it was getting, it was almost light out by this time. Rader had made his way back to where he had left his vehicle And then he drove and returned to the scout camp that he had deserted earlier. Then he went into his tent and pretended like he had been in there sleeping all night long. And he emerged a short time later, giving the impression that he had just woke up for the day. He spent that morning scrambling eggs for the scouts. For whatever reason, and I think it was because she had died so quickly so early on in the attack... He would later say that this kill, that this was not a very satisfying kill for him. Next, BTK and Factor X are going to focus in on Vicki Weggerly. Vicki's a 28-year-old wife and mother. She was a calm, quiet, kind person. She mm-hmm. loved children. And when she became p- pregnant with her child, she began providing child care from her home. Vicki attended two churches. She attended the Lutheran church because it was her faith. Mm -hmm. but she also attended the Methodist church because it was the neighborhood church. Mm. She volunteered to watch children in the church nurseries. Now Raider started stalking her in 1986. He, he would walk by her house and Vicky would be inside playing the piano many times. 
So he started calling Vicky Project Piano. Okay. In preparation for this project, Dennis made up a fake repairman hard hat. He had glued a Southwestern Bell logo onto the hard hat. On his shirt, he placed a fake name tag that he had fashioned out of someone's Southwestern Bell business card that he had found. He brought along with him a briefcase to look, you know, official. Inside the briefcase was the BTK hit kit. Right. He's always finding ways to disguise this hit kit that he's going to bring along with him. On September 16th, this is sometime after 10 a.m., he parked his car a few blocks away from her home, and then he first went to Vicky's neighbor's house, and he's dressed as this telephone repairman. He knocks on the door, and then he goes through his spiel with the elderly woman who answered the door, You know, saying, I need to check your phone, we're mm-hmm. checking phones in the neighborhood, blah, blah, blah. You know, this was kind of a smart move on his part. And he said that the reason why he knocked on the neighbor's door first was if Vicky happened to be looking out the window, mm-hmm. he didn't want to just walk from far away and she see him knock on her door first. He was determined to, he was determined to attack and kill somebody that day. Almost to the point that when the elderly woman had answered the door, it crossed his mind. Maybe I just attack her instead of going next door. After he talks to the neighbor lady, he's going to end up at Vicky's front door. And somehow Dennis Rader managed to talk himself inside the home, claiming that he needed to check the phone line from inside. Once mm-hmm. inside, he he goes over and he kind of like fiddles with the phone for a little bit. He even brought with him some kind of fake testing gadget that he threw in his briefcase. Mm-hmm. And then he turns on her and he informs her that he is going to need to tie her up. I wonder if he, you know, she was married. So I wonder if the intent of let me get into the house under the, the guise of checking this phone just to make sure that she's alone, be in there for enough time to make sure she's alone. Right. I imagine using a gun, he forced her into a bedroom and then he attempted to tie her up, but she, she fought him pretty bad. And, uh, she gave a fierce battle. She scratched him several times in the process. Raider ended up winning the physical fight, though, and he would secure her with ropes, and then he proceeded to strangle her to death using pantyhose as a ligature. He photographed the body in several poses, and then he left in Wagerly's vehicle. Yeah, and during this attack, she is, you know, claiming that her husband's going to come home, too, because she's trying to scare him off. Yeah, she wants to scare BTK out of the house, but... The weird thing is, and I don't know if this was routine or not, Captain, but her husband, Bill Wegerly, and did come home. He did come home soon after the attack. He came home so much soon after the attack that he actually saw Vicky's car driving in the opposite direction from their home. Mm. Now, when the car was kind of far away, he thought that it was Vicky. You know, he spots the vehicle. He's right. like, oh, there's there's our car. She's probably going somewhere. Yeah. Well, as the car got closer, he couldn't identify the driver, but he knew that it wasn't Vicky and actually assumed that it was not his vehicle that he was seeing right, at that right, time. Right. When he gets home, something very strange had happened. Remember, we talked about how much Vicky loved children and she even took care of other people's kids. But mm. when he arrives home, the home appears to be empty and his two-year-old son, Brandon, is just sitting there in the living room unattended. Mm-hmm. Bill walked the home and he couldn't find Vicky. Well, he's there for quite some time. I think he even like made his lunch. You know, he had returned home for lunch that day and he comes home and he starts to prepare his lunch. He's getting angry at his wife because why in the hell is his son there? This little two year old boy unattended in the home. Mm -hmm. And and furthermore, where does she go? Right. He's home for about 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And he's kind of, you know, at first, probably just walking around kind of nonchalant. But as the time goes on, he's getting angrier and he's starting to look and look and look around this house. Eventually, he discovers her lifeless body was placed between the bed and the wall. There's, you know, how sometimes people put their bed near the wall and there's only a small space there. Her body was either pushed down in there or had fallen down in there and he hadn't, he didn't see her. 
So he calls the police and he tells them what had happened. He calls and he says, you know, I, I'm pretty sure my wife is dead. I came home and my two-year-old son is by himself. Well, he's also going to tell him that he thinks he saw, well, now he thinks he saw his vehicle driving away from the house. Yeah. And when the paramedics arrive, they are desperately trying to revive her. Keep in mind, she would have only been dead if in fact she was dead when BTK left the home for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it, she was pronounced dead a short time later before they could get to the hospital. Now, BTK, meanwhile, had been driving around the city, and he is disposing of evidence as he's driving. Mm-hmm. Eventually, he returned to the area near Vicky's house, and he parked Weggerly's car just a couple blocks from their home, in fact. He exited the vehicle in the area on foot, Um, And he returned to his own car that he had left nearby changing his clothes. uh, He escaped all detection for this crime and was actually for the longest time, never suspected of this murder at all. You think somebody would have reported his car being, you know, a suspicious car within, within a few blocks of a crime taking place and nobody knows whose car that is. Correct. Yes. And, but one thing that might help him with this is that this is an attack during the middle of the day in a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. There's a good chance, you know, a lot of people off at work, people are less likely to see some things, right? This story right here, you know, all of these stories are extremely tragic. This one is a little, has a little more added tragedy to it because not only is a young mother killed here, and a young mm-hmm. wife killed here. Mm-hmm. But this is a real tough one because a lot of the police and detectives thought for sure that the husband actually had killed his wife. You know, he's the one that finds her dead. Uh-huh. Um, they couldn't believe the that, son was there. Right. They could not believe that he was home for 45 minutes to maybe an hour before discovering her body. Hmm. And so, yeah, that, that sounds a little fishy. Exactly. So you can see, you can see that side of the fence. Now on the other side of the fence, we have other detectives that had issue with this thought. And, and one reason was the knots that were found at the scene. Some of them thought they resembled some knots that they had seen at BTK crime scenes. Mm-hmm. And now number two, they thought that, you know, this, this would take some time in their investigation, but once they found the vehicle, and I know that it wasn't terribly far from her home, but mm. but the the problem they had with that was while logistically it was possible for this man to move her vehicle a few blocks from the home and return, nobody had seen him. Just like you said about BTK's suspicious car, nobody saw that either, I guess. Right, right. But the thought was they thought somebody would have seen him walking back to his home. They couldn't find anybody that had said that. And then three... And this is probably the most important was the little boy. Like you said, their son is still at home. Well, when police talk to the little boy, mind you, he's only two. So he's limited on words and stuff like that. Yeah. But But, the nightmares that kid is going to have. Well, the, the only thing that he was able to tell the investigators was, was a single sentence that was man hurt mommy, Mm. man hurt mommy. Well, a lot of the detectives found it strange that the boy would say man hurt mommy. They, if, if, if he had seen his father kill his mommy. mother, yeah, he would right. say daddy or oh, whatever right, right. he called him. Now, January 31st, 1987, upon returning home to Wichita, Kansas, after visiting family for a few days, Mary Fager was understandably shocked to discover her husband, Melvin, dead on the floor. This is directly in front of the door to their home. Her husband had been shot twice in the back. Now, their two daughters, this is Sherry, she's nine years old, and Kelly, who's 16 years old, they were found in the basement. They had been left in a covered hot tub with the the water running, I think it was at like 90 degrees in this hot tub. Sherry had been bound with electrical tape and placed in the water after having been strangled. Kelly had been drowned. Now, there were no signs of forced entry to the home, implying that maybe the killer was known to the family or at least good enough to talk his way or their way into the house. The husband and father, like I said, was found by the front door still wearing his coat. So there was one police theory about this crime is that the man may have been shot upon entering into the home, Mm -hmm. that he had un 
you know, unknowingly returned home during some portion of a crime being committed and startled the killer or killers. Mm Mm-hmm. One big clue in this case was the family car was missing. Now, along with a local handyman, um, there was a guy by the name of William Butterworth who had been employed by the family for some work around the house. I like their syrup. It was initially feared by the investigators that Butterworth was either another victim or he had you know, possibly right, been right, taken right. by force or that per- perhaps he was party- to whatever had happened in the house. Now his own van was found several days later. This was just blocks away from the house. Mm-hmm. A search of the van came up empty. They found no evidence in this van whatsoever on January 3rd, 1988. So almost a year later, Butterworth is arrested in Florida. He had called his wife and a family member reported this to the police and in fact, he was still on the phone when he was arrested. They had been looking for this guy ever since this murder went down. They find him in Florida because he decides to call his wife. Now, when he's arrested, the car keys, the keys to the Fager family vehicle, mm-hmm. they were found in his pocket. And the stolen car was found nearby. He was unarmed and he did not resist when he was arrested. Now, while being questioned by the police, he told the officers that he had entered the home, discovered the body of Melvin, that's the father, heard some noises in the house, got scared, and ran away. He had no obvious reason to flee to Florida. The police couldn't figure out, look, if you're not guilty, why did you flee the area? He didn't have a police record. He was not a match for the... The, there was semen found in the hot tub. He was not a match for that that semen. Mm-hmm. He was also not a match for strange fingerprints that were found inside the home. He was described as a guy who would always go out of his way to do a favor for someone. Nice guy. He had three children, a three-year-old, a six-month-old, six-month-old twins, I'm sorry. And he had been having some financial issues at the time, just weeks before these murders. Mm-hmm. Under questioning, you know, he's questioned multiple times, Captain. He did not change his story. His story did not change. He stuck to it. He said that he entered the house, saw the body, heard something, ran away. He also said that that being terrified in this situation, he thought he was going to die. Yeah. And being terrified in this situation, he didn't recall what he was doing or his whereabouts for several days after that went down. He said when he came to, he, it was like four or five days later and he was in Florida and he was afraid to return. Right. So Butterworth's defense attorney, he's going to be, he's going to be charged with this. However, his defense attorney has him undergo 20 hypnosis sessions over the course of four months. They're trying to get a full story or to see if possibly he's lying. Right. Under hypnosis, Butterworth gave a similar but much more detailed story of what had happened that day. He said that he had been building the family a sunroom, which was true. He took a break for lunch. When he returned, he said that Kelly, this is the oldest daughter, Mm -hmm. and someone that he assumed was possibly her boyfriend were in the hot tub. He he did not see um, anyone in the sunroom, but he said that he heard movement or saw some type of movement. Mm -hmm. So he decided that he was going to leave the home and he would come back later. You know, keep in mind, he assumes that he saw the oldest daughter with probably her boyfriend. Maybe he felt awkward at walking in on this situation decides to leave happens. So during this time he goes out and he goes shopping because he's just trying to kill some time while he's out. He bumps into a retired police captain. This is William dots. Now, later, William Dots would verify having seen and spoke with Butterworth that day at that approximate time. Dots went on to say that Butterworth did not seem to be shaken or to be nervous or acting strange when he met with him that day. Then Butterworth returned to the house at approximately 430. At this time, he said that the lights were off. He entered the solarium and he found Sherry face down in the hot tub. Then he saw Melvin dead in the hallway. 
he heard a noise and he realized that the murderer was still in the house. So frightened, he bolted. Now, for some reason, Captain, and I apologize because I do not know why, but apparently this man in the confusion ended up with the wrong set of keys somehow. I'm not sure how this happened, but when he was trying to get the heck out of there, right? he had accidentally tried to use Fager's keys to start his van. When he oh. realized that he had the wrong set of keys, he was, in, he was afraid he didn't want to enter the home again. He grabbed his stuff out of his van and then took off in Fager's car. Yeah, but can you imagine you have a psycho killer that you believe is still in the house, you're running for your life, mm-hmm. and then you get into a vehicle, you go to start it, and you have the wrong damn keys. And you have a victim's set of keys in yeah. your hand, and you're going to end up taking their vehicle because you don't want to go back into the house at that point. Right. Now, remember, he says that he kind of, he's uncertain of his whereabouts or what he was doing for approximately the next four days. He says when he came to, the next thing he remembers, he's in Florida. Mm. That he he magically wakes up in Florida. Once he comes to, he said that he felt shame and cowardice for right, running. Right, right. He was also afraid that he would be picked out to be the suspect or to have murdered these people. And that made him not want to return. And that's why he waited so long before he contacted anybody after he had already been out. He was charged with these three murders. But it was on June 7th. Well, that's because his story never changed. What we've learned from shows like Serial is if you change your story over and over, that they normally put you on the prosecutor's team. Yeah, and that's a good way to get your conviction overturned years later, or possibly at least. On June 7th, 1988, Butterworth was acquitted of all of the charges. Now, most people to this day believe that this is not an open case. They, they don't believe that the, you know, that the, they believe that the police have closed this case mm-hmm. because the police firmly believe in the public's eye that Butterworth was the killer of these three individuals. But then you have to wonder, we have this guy, BTK, who's active at the time, killing people inside their homes. And we have two female victims there. Mm-hmm. And remember, Dennis Rader was not opposed to attacking and killing children. And what we do know is this, Captain, on January, in January of 1988, Dennis Rader sent a letter to the mother who had discovered the bodies of her husband and children. And this letter simply said, I did not kill your family, but I admire the work. So an interesting, still unsolved to this very Mm -hmm. day, triple homicide. So maybe, maybe Butterworth did it. Maybe Butterworth has a partner. You know, maybe that would explain some of it because some of the evidence doesn't match up with him 100%. Right. Or maybe BTK did it, but isn't claiming responsibility for it for some reason. Then you have the other possibility, which is the killer is an unknown suspect. At the time that this letter was sent from Dennis Rader to Mary Fager, it was actually believed to be a hoax, simply someone pretending to be the BTK. But after his arrest, it was confirmed that the letter was, in fact, from Dennis Rader. Because, like most of his communications, Rader would make a photocopy of his letters. And to further elude detection, Dennis Rader would mail the photocopy, not the original, to either the police or to the media. After his arrest, police found the original amongst Rader's BTK memorabilia. But, right, but I, I'm just going to assume that BTK didn't do this because, one, he wanted credit for these crimes, and he wanted to be in the spotlight, and he, he wanted people talking about him, that he wanted people fearing him. you know. So he wrote a letter so he could get into the spotlight, but he also said, hey, I admire your work, but I didn't do this. And I think you're exactly right. I think him sending that letter is simply just a reminder to the general public. I'm still out there. Now there's another crazy person out there too. Right. I'm still out here and I'm watching and I'm waiting. Thanks for listening and stick around for the finale of BTK tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 